Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, September the 16th. Many of us are looking forward to the weekend, preparing for the weekend. Some people though, of course, can't, particularly people suffering from mental illness. There are no weekends when it comes to mental illness. Um, and we've done so many shows recently on many different aspects of our, our mental illness crisis. Uh, one actually earlier this week with a physician, Nicholas Carderas, about the role of social media um, in our mental health crisis, particularly of young people. Uh, we've done shows particularly on the mental illness pandemic afflicting young women, done stuff on COVID and its impact on mental illness, even on capitalism. But today we're talking not so much about mental illness, but about the politics of around it, and particularly uh, uh, the idea of an activist's history of mental health reform. We don't tend to empower the patients. We only speak on behalf of them. But this book, Fighting for Recovery, by my guest today, Phyllis Vine, uh, is not so much a, a, book, a book about victims, but about uh, agency and the mental health issue. Uh, Phyllis is joining us from Stockbridge, Massachusetts, Philip, uh, Phyllis, welcome. Um, I hope I got this right. Uh, what is um, uh, an activist history of mental health reform? Is it about establishing agency for people suffering from mental illness? Yes, and it's about people who have experienced, who have a lived experience of mental illness, uh, assuming their own agency and attempting to help other people acquire theirs. Um, a lot of people who had been hospitalized, committed, institutionalized, were told that they had no agency, they had no voice, they had no choice. And some of the pioneers of this movement, uh, people like Judy Chamberlain or Howie the Harp, they said, not only do we have voice, but we're going to use it and we're going to use it to empower ourselves and change the circumstances that people have uh, closed off to us, uh, uh, overcome the barriers that people say we ought to accept because we have had a diagnosis of mental illness. So yes, it's entirely about agency and it's about um, autonomy and having the voice and the authority to participate in one's life, one's treatment, one's future with hope. Um, so I, I think that you've, you've pinpointed it um, right, right away there. Phyllis, this is um, a, a sort of a classic chicken and egg problem, I'm guessing, in the sense that when you have an illness, when you break a leg, when you have a, a problem with your heart, you can talk about it. But of course, the problem of mental illness seems to be, at least from the outside, uh, the 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 problem of thought itself. So putting that thought into articulating one's own illness is a complicated business, isn't it? Um, well, I think the way 
you have described it makes it appear as if people who have a mental illness are always psychotic or always have a disabling thought process. When we're talking about mental illnesses, we're talking about uh, people who have a range of symptoms that have been classified and diagnosed within a category of mental illness. Some of those have to do with depression. Some of them have to do with schizophrenia, some with schizoaffective. Others are trauma-induced responses uh, to situations. So I think that what we're talking about when we talk about mental illness is not a single entity, but we're talking about multiple component parts that are uh, used to arrive at a diagnosis. And it is that diagnosis within the category that's called mental illness. So I think that um, it's, it's not correct to assume that people who have a mental illness are incapable of having their own thoughts about their own agency, how they want to live a life and how they want help in the service sector to live that life more productively. Yeah, I, I, uh, let, let me be clear. I, I'm not suggesting that they shouldn't be able to talk about it. I'm just suggesting that that might be one of the, the logical challenges. Um, one of our other persistent themes in this show, uh, all too persistent, is the uh, dysfunctionality, the corruption, the rottenness of the American medical system. Is much of um, much of your activist history of mental health reform also a history of the failure of the professional medical industry to make sense of, to come to terms, to be accountable on the mental health front? Yeah, I think that that's absolutely accurate. I think that um, mental health and mental illness is unlike any other medical situation for which there are a biological or chemical indicators. Mental illnesses have been confused as idea of, well, let me back up. Mental illnesses have had a history of, from longstanding where people didn't know what to do or how to characterize people whose behavior they did not understand. And it's a tragic history, Phyllis. All too tragic, isn't it? It's tragic because it involves force it involves um, taking people against their will to institutionalize them. And it involves a, a lot of discrimination and presumption based on preconceived notions that are not necessarily applicable. So you have hospitals that were filled with people who may or may not have had what we would consider an illness, but they were socially marginal perhaps, or they were poor or they differed from the, uh, the, the conventional or the, the predominant culture. And they were very different from people who might have had some kind of a psychiatric disturbance, but they were all lumped together. And as you say, it was a very unfortunate history. And institutions perpetuated the uniformity of these people when in fact they were really quite heterogeneous um, some of them didn't belong there at all, and people who had some kind of psychiatric challenge could have been helped to leave the institution if they had the correct uh, approach and if there were people who were able to help them recreate relationships outside of the institution. And, and, and how much is politics lumped in here? 
thinking out loud here, but the idea, for example, historically of, of homosexuality being considered a mental illness. How much is the history of mental illness bound up in those kinds of deeply disturbing political issues? Well, to a large degree, and perhaps because mental illness was not a medically diagnosed condition, it was to a large degree socially diagnosed. And um, people who were considered outside the social norm were considered deviant or ill or mentally ill. And so the the example that you um, just uh, cited is a very major contribution of actually psychiatry in re-diagnosing mental illnesses and saying that homosexuality, as it was called, um, had to be removed as a diagnostic category, that that was not a mental illness. And so to a large degree, both the internal politics of psychiatry and the external politics of decision makers over taxpayer money, how they were going to uh, source supports, uh, both play a very significant role. Where do you think we are, Phyllis? And this is a hard question. I mean, you're not a doctor, but where are we in the history of not uh, activism, but mental illness itself? Do you think we are on more solid ground now scientifically in terms of our understanding of it? Well, I think one of the problems that we have confronted was the uh, pursuit of a biological uh, destiny, if you will. The presumption that we could find the cause and the cure led to a, a, a biomedical pursuit. And the reality is, that we have realized, and a lot of this has to do with the last 20 years, but we have realized that what's important in helping people is not a biochemical solution exclusively, um, and I'm not opposed to medication, but, but medication is not the only answer, and medication is an individual situation. But I think that the pursuit of, of cause and cure Led a lot, of, led most of the research up through the last uh, 20 years to find a magic bullet for which there was no answer. And the reality is, in the last 20 years, we've realized, and that watershed happened in 1999 when a Surgeon General's report basically said recovery is real based on the work of people in the activist movement who had driven the pursuit of alternatives to psychiatry. Um, recovery is real. And in the last 20 years, I think we've been able to recognize that there are a number of ways that we can promote recovery, enabling people who have a diagnosis to live very productive, happy, self-determined lives. Uh, and I think that when we talk about recovery, which is new to the lexicon, we need to realize there are many ways people recover. They don't, it's not an either or. It's a recovery socially, it's a recovery in relationship to oneself and one's family. It's an engagement in an occupational endeavor. It may be a pursuit of education. There are many dimensions which we all uh, experience uh, on a routine basis. Well, people with a mental illness, whose lives have been paused 
by uh, a hospitalization or treatment or managing their symptoms to enable them to return to a community, they too recover on these other dimensions. And SAMHSA uh, has uh, officially acknowledged the eight dimensions of wellness. So I think that we are in a much better place than we were 30 years ago, even at the turn of uh, uh, 20 years ago, when we were unfamiliar with the range of choices that can help people recover and live uh, very satisfying lives. And to a large degree, that comes from seeing people with a lived experience, activists, ex-patients, some call themselves survivors because the conditions in the hospitals required that they survive them. We see that they have recovered. We now recognize their contributions as peers and they are models of the opportunities that people can have through recovery. I just wanna say that part of this is so new that the whole field has not yet caught up to it. All right, which is why it's 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 such an important new book. Uh, you're fighting for recovery, the an activist history of mental health reform, and it's so foreign to our times in the sense that it's actually good news, Philip Phyllis. We're so used to bad news, epidemics of mental health, COVID, suicides, young people, but this is actually good news, isn't it? I think so. I think so. And if we look at how it has evolved and the self-help programs, the abilities of people to re-engage, and some of, the, um, some of the mechanisms of that. I mean, for example, there's a program called RAP, the Wellness Recovery Action Plan. This was designed by somebody who had herself a bipolar disorder, and she, when she was taken off of medication, uh, she went to her psychiatrist and said, what are some of the social alternatives that you can um, offer me? And he had none. He only had one. He, he, he had a one note band and that was medication. So she worked on networking, talking to other people. Right. The- That's what I was thinking is this is a very much of a 21st century movement. It's not a top down movement. It's a it's a networked um, movement. And, and, I, and I'm curious you keep on using the r word recovery you haven't used the c word cure is this a word that's out of fashion these days especially when it comes to mental illness and mental health should we be thinking in terms of recovery rather than cures phyllis well yeah i think the recovery provides a a choice it provides an alternative and a mechanism for re-engaging an agency whereas cure depends on professional medical people right well or, or drugs oh it, it's it's a it's an unrealistic expectation perhaps for many of the health conditions that we have whether it's diabetes or hip replacement or some form of living with you know a heart uh, problem uh, we all have to manage whatever you know, whatever we're dealt with. And for some people, the management of symptoms that are easy to say, ah, that's a signature of mental illness, but living with those symptoms um, may not be technically cure in the sense that there's no ever, uh, there's no other issues related to that, 
but it is a way of living. And I don't think that we can expect a cure for many of the illnesses that we consider chronic illnesses. And I think that mental illnesses, which should be part of the larger health spectrum of illnesses rather than siloed and isolated, is one of those chronic conditions for which we can live successfully if we can manage uh, the elements of the symptoms that, that so when they're- with it. It, it, in, a, in an odd way, it's rather like the history of a, a once fatal illness, cancer, which is no longer certainly as fatal. You had an interesting piece uh, in the Washington Post, uh, a thought piece from last month about uh, state-led mental health. And, and you write in the piece on the role of COVID and mental health. Do you think it's appropriate um, to think of mental health these days as an epidemic, or is that part of the problem? To think of it as an academic? I'm as an epidemic. As an epidemic. Absolutely, it's an epidemic. I mean, when we see what's happened as a result of COVID, uh, rates of depression doubled. When we see the degree of isolation that has resulted as a result of COVID, um, there's no doubt about this. When we recognize the rates of suicide among youngsters that have just skyrocketed, there is nothing short of an epidemic there. And our response to these is really an indicator of our quality as a country, as a culture. Are we going to let people just suffer and be isolated and without the supports that we know we can supply and provide and see successful. Um, it is absolutely an epidemic in terms of the incidence of uh, concern uh, of people who are reporting these problems. It's also an unmet epidemic because we are seeing a real drain of professionals in um, mental health, either they're, uh, they're burned out, uh, there never were enough people available to assist, to prevent a crisis, to, uh, to enable somebody to get services before it became a crisis. And then after it becomes a crisis, we have absolutely failed because we have in to a large degree criminalized mental illness. So we are, struggling on so many dimensions uh, that- But you haven't, and, and, and coming back to that piece, um, you believe that there is a role for government, maybe more local government or state-led government than federal government. So it, it's not just a recovery movement. There's still a need for uh, the authorities to help with this epidemic. Well, there's a ter terrific need because mental health needs to be incorporated and built services need to be part of the infrastructure of the local the state and the federal government when somebody has a crisis or somebody has a need it's usually detected at the local level uh, either in schools or in churches or seeing somebody having struggling at work these are places that are local now then the question is what are the resources either provided by the federal government or the state or that person's community to enable them to get the help that they need. So there is an intersection at all levels of government and through all 
spheres of the society that should basically speak to the need to integrate mental health in the in, in, in all of the institutions that that service people at any level. Very briefly, uh, Phyllis, yours is a, an activist history of mental health reform, particularly over the last 20 or 30 years. Is there one particular figure in this who you think captures the spirit, epitomizes the hope and the struggle that is involved here? Well, I think that there are many. I think of Howie the Harp. Howie was a youngster. He was hospitalized when he was 13, and he spent three years at Creedmoor. Uh, he eloped, which is another way of saying he escaped. He jumped out a window after he heard doctors talking about keeping him for another year. And he was told he had absolutely no hope for a future. Um, Howie was somebody who recognized what was necessary to create autonomy, dignity, voice in the community. And he went on to become one of the great builders of advocacy and peer services, first in Cal well, working in California and New York. Um, and in fact, there's even a, an advocacy center teaching other people with lived experience how to create advocacy and become peers. So Howie was one of these, these visionaries. And one of the things that was great about him was he knew how to work with other people, other organizations, uh, to, uh, to work with politicians and, uh, and, and service providers. So he was able to build coalitions around the priorities of autonomy, having voice, and helping people get the resources they needed. We're not just talking about people who have autonomy. We're talking about people who can use that autonomy and voice to have housing, to... Uh, to speak up for themselves around discrimination, around issues that would provide uh, opportunities for education. So it's not so it's not an abstract voice. It's a voice when it comes time to achieve what they want based on their ability to articulate their needs and speak on behalf of themselves. Phyllis, what about your role in this? Um, you're not just a writer. You, I'm, I'm guessing, in a sense, you're an activist. This is a kind of second career for you. Uh, your first career was teaching uh, history. You taught at University of Michigan, Union College, Sarah Lawrence. You wrote a really interesting book, actually, One Man's Castle, Clarence Darrow in Defense of, an Ameri of the American Dream. This, I had dinner last night with the historian um, uh, Carol Anderson. I don't know if you know her. Uh, she's an African-American historian, and she brought that book up, actually, coincidentally, over dinner. What's your role in this? Why did you go from academia, from a, a, a rather nice job, I'm guessing, at Sarah Lawrence, to focusing on this and becoming, in a sense, an activist yourself? Well, I was actually an activist even when I was an academic. I was an activist before I was an academic. Um, and uh, I was involved in the development of the women's movement, uh, both as a student at the University of Michigan, where I got my doctorate in history, later uh, at Sarah Lawrence, which had a, and still has a prominent women's history program, the first in the nation. Uh, and even as an academic, I was teaching the history of healthcare. 
And uh, that was long before I wrote Families in Pain, which was my first book about mental illness and mental health. Uh, I am a family person. I have uh, three generations of mental illness in my family. So it was a logical place for me to uh, find an academic interest. And what I think happened over the years was I realized the history of reform, which had been told through the eyes of scholars who were looking at reforms of systems from the top down, was different from the experience of activism and reform that I had lived with. And that was from the bottom up. And that was what was happening on the grounds, what was happening in the women's movement and the civil rights movement and all of the movements that I grew up with. And as a result of that, when I uh, realized that I wanted to be more of an activist than I had time for, and that I wanted to spend more time understanding mental health than teaching history, which was wonderful. I loved Sarah Lawrence. It was, I, I left there not because I didn't like the job. It was because I had other things I wanted to do. And at that point, I had already acquired a master's in public health. And then I realized that what I lacked was um, the, the ability to tell the story that might engage somebody in um, the uh, community as an activist rather than an academic. So it was a kind of a natural progression, but it was rooted in a history of activism on the streets uh, from the time I was uh, a teenager living in Los Angeles before I moved to the Midwest. So for this, it seemed to, to be a logical question. Well, what happens? to the people who have the real experience and who can define what the needs are and recognize what the gap is between what they need and what's being offered. And so it was uh, it, it was not a, a, a major chore for me to look at that um, from the point of view of the, of the people who were driving reform because they wanted a system that was more compatible and they didn't want something that was as dead end as being told, oh, you have no light. You must be, you must be able to live in a hospital for the rest of your life. And they said, no. Yeah, no. it's, uh, and, and the way you're presenting it and the way you present the argument in fighting for recovery, it is a natural outgrowth of other civil rights movements from African-Americans to women to homosexuals. Um, Finally, uh, Phyllis, a lot of people are going to be watching this, or most of us watching this, uh, listening to this with friends or children or parents who are suffering some sort of mental illness, sometimes knowingly, sometimes unknowingly, sometimes acknowledging it, sometimes refusing to acknowledge it. I know it's a broad question, but what does your book, Fighting to reco for recovery and act the, your, your activist history of mental health reform. What does it say to all of us dealing with this on the front lines as in families and in, in, in communities? What, 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 what help can you bring to, to people suffering well, from this? And, and, and all of us are. Everybody knows somebody. Everyone's associated with somebody, including themselves, who are confronted with, with mental illness. Well, I think for a very long time, there was the erroneous presumption that there was nothing that could be done. And I think that that's wrong. There's a lot that can be done to help people 
move into a recovery mode, a recovery trajectory. And I think that having hope, knowing that there is a door that is open is a terrific way of approaching the search for services, the search for help, for connection, for community, for other people who can be, uh, who, who can guide and assist and walk with you or anybody you know in that journey. It is a journey. It's not an either or, it's a process. And it requires um, having support systems throughout. So I think that the, the important thing, the most important thing is to not give up, to know that there is a brighter day, that we have a reason to hope. And that reason is because there is a recovery that is possible. Well, it's encouraging, but about a dark subject. It's always good to have, I'm not sure if it's good news on mental illness itself, but certainly the idea of it being uh, uh, an issue, a political issue associated with activism is really important. So it's an important new book. And as, uh, as Phyllis has said, um, this movement and these ideas are so new that often people aren't even able to find the language. So it's an important book even discovering and defining a new language around uh, mental illness and mental health. So congratulations, Phyllis, uh, on that. What else are you reading these days? Any other good books? Yeah, lots of them, actually. Um, I just finished uh, Stephen Johnson's Extra Life, uh, and it's a short history of living longer. And it's hard to believe how fascinating he can make demography. But it's mm. a very well he's a very good writer, Johnson. I have to get him on the show, actually. He's a wonderful writer. And what I like in particular about this book is he makes a distinction between heroes who make discoveries and the vast narrative of people who are engaged in carrying that information to make it um, a reality, to implement it. And so as we look, it, it seems to me to be compatible with the network of people who are driving mental health reform. So that's probably one of the reasons I really like it um, and found it so good. I just finished that. There's a, another book that um, I'm finding fascinating and it's by a psychiatrist and his name is Mark Reagans and it's called Journeys Beyond the Frontier. And I think that Mark is a, a rebel and his uh, book is subtitled a Rebellious Guide to Psychosis and Other Extraordinary Experiences. And what's so interesting to me about this book is how he was a classically trained bi a biological psychiatrist who shares in this book what enabled him to see the social relationships that lead people into the isolation that produces psychosis and then how to rebuild um, out of that with a, a different sense of relationships and self-image and the information that's required to process reality. And so those are the two books that I, you know, I put one down and I pick up the other and I, I see they talk to each other through me. <laughs>